Well, good day, everyone, and welcome to another FS Club webinar. It's my delight today to be hosting Mark Field. Mark's the former MP for the City of Westminster. You've read his CV. We'll get into that in a moment. Uh, today's topic is very much about the City of London and the smaller international financial centers. This is cooperation in the future, competition or collaboration. And we, I think we'll be touching not just on the city of London, but very much on the global changes ahead uh, for everyone. Now, you'll know me, I'm Michael Minelli. I'm one of the directors of CCN, and it really is a genuine privilege to be able to present these webinars. Our sponsors are a, an amazingly tolerant and open group of people who let us range freely across technology, economics, and finance, often with a social purpose. And I think that could be a, a topic for today's discussion. What is the social purpose? of international financial centers. And I believe that there, there are, uh, and we're, we're moving on to that in the discussion. Now, the agenda today is, as ever, fairly straightforward. My job is to get out of your way and let you hear uh, from Mark and his thoughts. And then we will have approximately uh, 20 minutes for a good, uh, full and frank uh, Q&A session. A reminder for those of you uh, who are online and those new to this, uh, please don't email any comments or questions because I'm here with you. I won't be getting them. Uh, send them through the GoToWebinar question facility on your uh, little control panel, and I will feed those into a conversation with Mark. If we uh, do have uh, too many questions, I will be forwarding all questions to Mark, and he can answer them uh, directly with you if, if you feel that there's a direct question that you'd like to ask. So uh, that's the, that's, those are the mechanics of it. Uh, and just before we get started, Mark and I were chatting yesterday, and we thought, uh, frankly, that it might be a bit of fun uh, to have a little poll to kind of gauge how the audience feels. Uh, the poll today is really a fairly straightforward. Really, over the next five years, choose one region only for London's financial diplomacy. Now, that's clearly not the way that we think, but if you had to choose one, what would it be? I'm going to launch the poll now. Uh, fingers on buzzers, people. Uh, I know this is a very quick audience, but poll is out there. Uh, we see people uh, answering, oh my gosh, uh, wow. These are very quick on the buzzers out there, Mark. Uh, uh, we've already got uh, nearly half the audience has voted in 15 seconds. So, uh, very good. yeah, too many video games, I suspect. Uh, but <laughs> I can leave the poll open another five seconds there. Okay, good. Just closing the poll now, uh, and I will uh, share the results. So uh, really uh, quite strongly in favor, Mark, there of uh, uh, focusing on Europe or the Anglosphere. So uh, that, that gives you at least a taste of your audience. And let's see, uh, perhaps we can ask the same uh, poll at the end and uh, see what, what people thought then. Anyway, uh, Mark, uh, the floor is yours. Michael, thank you very much indeed. Uh, good day, everyone. Uh, good morning here from London. Um, listen, I, uh, I've clearly got some, uh, uh, we could talk a lot about Brexit, I guess, given the, uh, the, res the result of that particular poll, but maybe we'll, we'll leave that. I think many of you may know uh, my views on this issue that are not unconnected with the fact that I'm not still a member of Parliament. Um, but uh, listen, any wistful thought that a quick dusting down of the old yellow and blue books from almost three decades ago in my days as a corporate lawyer with Freshfields would be of any regulatory or compliance utility as I took on the non-executive chairmanship with Capital International Bank in the Isle of Man uh, were, I'm afraid needless to say, quickly dispelled. 
the, the reintroduction I've had to corporate life uh, over the last uh, nine months has been a crash course in providing support and feedback on the updating design and implementation of policies and procedures to monitor risk and preventing uh, all elements of financial crime. Naturally, having such a perspective uh, and historical understanding is, all, as, all, as, as always, is a cornerstone to providing dispassionate and independent advice. And this, I know, has also been central to the insight, uh, insights that my old friend, uh, Alderman Professor Michael Mainelli, has always had at the heart of his long finance research. And I've known the ZN team for well over a decade, and their thought-provoking uh, sense of perspective has helped me formulate distinctive views as a legislator uh, and policymaker um, in, in the course of and in the aftermath of the last financial crisis. Because as we uh, encounter a renewed populist wave of threats to financial orthodoxy, courtesy of modern monetary theory and the like, we shall doubtlessly be informed, I think, by a refreshed underpinning of macroeconomic orthodoxies and certainties from Michael and his team. Now, small international financial centers, the IFCs, have long been in the sight of such critics. So as the world moves on from social distancing, lockdowns, and the dark shadow of the pandemic, and whilst policymakers set out fresh thinking with the pressing uh, task of paying down global debt uh, in as equitable a manner as possible, the political attacks, in my view, on IFCs would only be renewed. Now, the bewilderingly swift change in sentiment over global trade cooperation will also fast impact on the environment that financial services work within. Much has already changed in tax havens over the past decade. Other initiatives will soon be in train. From another of my post-parliamentary roles as a senior advisor to the Cayman Islands Government Office here in London, we are ensuring a regime of transparency in public registers of beneficial ownership whose implementation will rightly be coordinated internationally. Even now, however, there remains a fundamental lack of understanding of the IFC's functions and the benefits that they provide to the wider global community. Before the UK and our international partners uh, look to develop further international standards on financial regulation, I believe it is critical that uh, politicians and policymakers formulate and implement policy in an informed, consistent and balanced manner. As such, it's vital that a dispassionate view of IFCs is taken that looks sensibly at the benefits they can offer to the City of London, to our nation, as well as to the broader global financial system. The UK, of course, has a unique uh, position in this debate. We have a constitutional relationship through our Crown dependencies and the overseas territories with half of the top 30 overseas financial centres. Of course, we've got to be wary that a further wave of standards and regulations may well be imposed in some jurisdictions, yet overlooked in others. Not only would this be incompatible with the need to find a global response to the formulation of new financial regulation, but it risks undermining the UK's financial sector and the wider British economy, which is a major recipient of investment capital, um, capital raising through small IFCs. Now, the international financial centres, many of which are listed on the slide in front of you, uh, are valued above all for their uh, political stability uh, and the regulatory simplicity, and are used, of course, by the global financial community for a variety of reasons. 
they include the benefit of a familiar legal system, of course. Uh, the ones close to our own hearts uh, use English common law. But they also uh, benefit from a very high quality of service providers, the ability um, to meet important investor requirements, such as the legal infrastructure to sell shares, a lack of foreign exchange controls uh, that remove restrictions on the payment of dividends, uh, of interest on dividends, of tax neutrality, not of course to be confused as some commentators would have us with tax evasion. But that tax neutrality enables investors from multiple jurisdictions to ensure they do not meet multiple layers of taxation uh, as funds pass through the global financial system. Uh, but as I say, the legal neutrality um, that ensures that no one uh, and no one nationality is given special treatment is also something that I think in a particularly in a more populist um, protectionistic world will become uh, an even more important selling point. It is for this reason that there has been this mutually beneficial relationship between the City of London and the three Crown dependencies and the overseas territories, demonstrated not only by massive capital flows between the two, which aids market liquidity and investment in the UK, but also by legal and constitutional similarities and the transfer of skilled professionals. To give just uh, one statistic, uh, and there are many that I know are close at hand, um, to give one idea of the scale of the capital flows, the UK banks had net financing from the three crown dependencies, that's Jersey, Guernsey and the Isle of Man, uh, totaling some 146 billion US dollars at the end of 2018. These benefits, I think, are often overlooked or perhaps conveniently ignored. That in part is a result of small IFC's relatively low profile and their absence from intergovernmental bodies such as the OECD, uh, which now, of course, design many of the global financial regulations. As governments grapple with the health impact of COVID-19, attention will, I think, soon turn to the need to provide uh, functional uh, economies moving forward. As in previous financial crises, liquidity will, I think, once, take, once more take on uh, an increased importance. Indeed, an impending global credit crunch has already persuaded some economists to argue that providing liquidity will be more important than stimulating demand right now. It's this very type of collective investment vehicle domiciled in places like the Cayman Islands, Jersey and Guernsey, that provide crucial liquidity to business and governments alike uh, by channeling invest capital into the ailing global financial system. I think there now needs to be much greater understanding of the role and the proven benefits provided by small international financial centres as part of the City of London's transaction chain. Let's start to dispel some of the popular myths that surround such centres. First, the, the myth somehow that the IFCs have a negative impact on growth of the global economy. In reality, many of the small IFCs are able to offer a stable, well-regulated and neutral jurisdiction through which to facilitate international and cross-border business. Investment channeled into small IFCs will often provide further investment opportunities, um, competitiveness and access to capital markets for business and investors in both the developed and emerging market economies. Those funds are largely accounted for by the upstreaming to the City of London head office of deposits collected by UK banks, including Lloyd's, the Royal Bank of Scotland, Barclays, HSBC, Santander, and a number of building societies. In addition to aiding capital flows, expanding investment opportunities through offshore centres leads to increased uh, domestic 
uh, investment and employment, creating jobs both at the financial centre and in the domestic economy. I mean, for example, I was uh, just uh, looking through my own uh, uh, library of an old atlas uh, dating to the late 1960s. The population of the Cayman Islands at that time was literally eight and a half thousand. It was up to 62,000 and rising uh, at the moment, um, of whom actually about 25, 26,000 are Cayman. Uh, others, of course, are uh, nationals uh, working overseas. But it's worth remembering too that um, many of the domiciled funds from places such as Cayman or the Channel Islands are large-scale providers of social housing and sustainable finance products even here in the UK. And uh, whilst um, it is often said um, rather disapprovingly that the Cayman Islands um, owned company, or, uh, originating company, those are often, as I say, playing a very important role in a lot of uh, social projects. And of course, increasingly um, with an eye on what's happening um, in environmental and green finance, uh, I think there'll be an important role uh, continue, continuing to be played. But IFCs also play an important role in developing uh, and allocating capital efficiently. To this end, they act as an important financial intermediary, uh, which uh, matches capital provided by savers in one country with the investment need of borrowers in another. Whilst this has, of course, led to concerns over round tripping in which capital is recycled to an offshore centre in order to give it the appearance of foreign investment and attract more favourable tax treatment, the experience of both China and India throws this into doubt. Both countries have removed tax breaks for foreign investment during the past decade or so, yet have seen inward investment continue to soar. As a major net recipient of capital flows from small IFCs, it's likely that the UK corporate sector would suffer in the event that it finds it more difficult or indeed more expensive uh, to access capital via international markets. A second myth that comes up regularly is that IFCs somehow played a part in causing the global financial crisis. Whilst it is convenient to blame far-off countries for causing any crisis, even those who work in the financial markets do not accept that the IFCs were any sort of cause of this. The UK Treasury Select Committee found conclusively after uh, 2008-09 that the operation and our operation of Crown Dependencies and Overseas Territories didn't contribute to global financial contagion. Indeed, others would take the opposite view and argue that the liquidity provided from small IFCs was a significant positive to the UK during the last financial uh, crisis and a contributory factor to our relatively smooth transition towards recovery thereafter. As I've always mentioned, um, uh, already mentioned, this, this may well be put to the test again in the near future. Thirdly, it is suggested that IFCs engage in harmful tax practices. In my view, concerns about the UK's tax base being stripped by unfair competition have always been overstated. It's clear that as we leave the EU, um, any further policy initiatives in this need to protect the important principle of tax sovereignty. Ironically, of course, at the very moment that the UK has drawn stumps on EU membership, it is the EU Commission that has introduced its tax blacklist project designed to impose EU tax policies on over 60 sovereign nations across the world, not just uh, tax havens, as I said, but for countries from the UAE to South Korea are included. Now, in fairness, it is worth noting that cross-border coordination on tax, money laundering and counter-terrorism financing has, of course, been in place courtesy of initiatives now from the 37 nations of the OECD and the Financial Action Task Force for some two decades or more. The Obama administration, of course, unilaterally imposed 
the FATCA, which required other countries to collect data to assist UK tax collection, uh, uh, so US tax collection, US citizens and corporations domiciled elsewhere. However, the EU's initial tax blacklist plan was thwarted by OECD pressure some five years ago. But having returned from the drawing board, its relaunched proposal in the following year, in 2016, rested upon three pillars of tax transparency, fair taxation, and compliance with the base erosion and profit shifting requirements that uh, the organization for economic cooperation and development uh, had long um, um, stood up for. Unfortunately, one of the unintended consequences of Brexit is that the UK's voice, and in particular that of the City of London, will no longer be heard standing up against what is likely to be an unprecedented uh, subjective power grab that may well inadvertently adversely impact the UK's international financial centres. Needless to say, the demands for fact, uh, fair taxation are likely only to become louder in troubled years uh, that lie ahead for uh, a post-pandemic global economy. The notion of fairness is both subjective, but also likely to be fast changing in these times. The most intrusive aspect of the EU's insistence on fair taxation is the need for countries with low corporate taxation regimes to adopt economic substance in order to qualify for double tax relief or regulatory equivalents. This will, of course, mandate uh, companies to maintain staff premises and designated expenditure if operating in a lower or zero tax regime. Frankly, that is a monstrous uh, encroachment on sovereignty. And in the midst of internal differences over the EU's own pandemic bailout scheme, it's happened surprisingly that economic substance provisions have not been tested for compliance within the EU, um, where um, yet uh, the EU Commission wishes uh, to apply them extraterritorially. Now, from the City of London's perspective, I believe it is crucial that the UK now fully engage in Paris at the OECD whose work is driving a consensual level playing field um, on global taxation, um, which I think has been both remarkable and praiseworthy. The EU Commission is going well beyond established OECD standards in purporting to set an independent and more aggressive agenda, and it will compete directly with the OECD as the international standard setter. Um, whilst it's often talked about, of course, as the OECD being the rich man's uh, club, it also contains some 15 non-EU members. And one of the key problems, I think, is that much of the EU's assertion in the area of unfair tax and tax leakage caused by small IFCs is underpinned by sentiment rather than any empirical research and evidence. It's often thought that uh, international financial centres do not benefit developing countries. Now, small IFCs have been accused of supporting capital flow out of developing countries, yet they are often playing an important role in aiding development um, by enabling those countries uh, effectively to rent financial expertise from other countries whilst they develop financial centres of their own. Crucially, they also uh, offer investors greater protection of their property rights uh, against domestic potential uh, political uncertainty. It's no exaggeration also to say that without smaller offshore financial centres, many developing countries would not secure key funding for project finance, which makes a substantial contribution to the improved lives of many of the most vulnerable global citizens. Furthermore, the Financial Action Task Force over the past decade um, has given many of the IFCs a positive assessment in meeting their own independent recommendations on anti-money laundering, 
and terrorism finance. In fact, centers such as the Channel Islands perform better in fi fighting financial crime when compared with major countries such as France, Italy, the US, or even, dare I say it, the UK. So if the EU continues down this path of selective blacklisting amidst its own selective criteria, what will this mean for the hope of the international standards in the financial services sphere? I think that uh, we should stand behind the OECD in championing a consensual cooperative path on tax policy development in the decade ahead. Build upon the work that has happened over the last 10 to 12 years, because if this approach is now torn up and the EU imposes a politically driven domestic policy on others without consultation, it's surely naive to think that the US, China or ASEAN will simply allow the EU to build a global framework suiting its own interests without retaliation. We've already seen the early and quite damaging signs of tit-for-tat uh, retaliation in the imposition of as the US and China skirmish, trade skirmish plays out. Uh, surely it isn't only uh, free traders amongst us who believe that cooperation rather than conflict, particularly on tariffs, um, is the right way forward. In this world of Uncertainty and economic conflict, uh, Professor Manelli is, I think, wise to observe that uh, IFCs should continue to carve out opportunities where onshore regulators uh, have not created sensible wholesale finance and international trade regulations. IFCs walk on what he describes as a tightrope of paradoxical claims, small and nimble enough on the one hand to execute rapid change when laws impede sensible decisions, but also uh, uh, presenting themselves as, stable, uh, as havens of stability in a ro uh, avoiding hasty and populist legislation. If I could end, if I may, just with uh, some observations of my own in a speech I made in Parliament almost exactly a decade ago, back in July of 2010. Whilst it's inevitable that governments will attempt to prevent further financial crises occurring, and that this will inevitably result in the development of global standards, it is also critical that politicians and policymakers do not depart from the need to formulate and implement policy in an informed, consistent and balanced manner. When it comes to our own naked self-interest, it would be foolish of the UK to ignore the proven benefits provided by small international financial centres as part of the City of London's world-class operations. Thank you. Mark, uh, well, that was uh, that was absolutely fascinating, and thank you so much for uh, uh, for keeping to time as well, which gives us uh, plenty of time for questions. We've got quite a few uh, comments already. Uh, again, uh, please do send your comments or questions in uh, quickly. We've got uh, 50 people online, so a uh, bit of time here. Uh, well, I'll, I'll kick off. Actually, uh, we've got uh, somebody out in the Channel Islands, uh, a regular listener viewer, Bob McDowell. Uh, Bob points out that the IFCs do not have liquidity and therefore require collaboration with major financial centers uh, like London. Uh, and he's, uh, he's curious, uh, do you think that more regulatory collaboration with the UK is necessary? Uh, will this emerge post-Brexit as crown dependencies financially and economically align themselves with the UK? Um, well, I hope so. I mean, obviously, um, we are in very uncertain uh, times. Um, we are, as I say, to touch on it, we're in a, a world where um, populism but also protectionism um, may become much more of a, a watchword. And I, I take the view, uh, I've always taken the view that uh, whether it's crown dependencies or overseas territories, 
they are part of the UK family. Um, I, I know not technically, uh, I'll be shouted down from Jersey or Guernsey very quickly. Um, not technically part of the UK, but I think you know, know what I mean, but part of the of the, the broader family, um, not least because of uh, uh, all, all the issues that I've, I've referred to, the, the idea of uh, uh, the rule of law um, and, and a, a reliable legal system of tax neutrality and the like. Um, and I personally think that we need to make sure that we uh, find ways of working closely together. Um, the regulatory framework is going to be um, one where we're going to have, say, let's say we're leaving the European Union, clearly we're not going to be at the table in, in that regard. But I do think we need to try and work towards international norms. Um, and I think one of the dangers with um, running down a, a task very quickly of, um, of uh, bringing new compliance and regulation uh, on board here is that we will actually disadvantage our own uh, markets, um, but uh, but no, I, I'm uh, very hopeful that um, again, looking at the way that these crown dependencies operate with uh, significant levels of expertise in in each of the particular islands there, um, that uh, that they should look towards the city as being um, a very much a safe haven for ongoing cooperation. Uh, Bob raises an interesting point here in a lot of ways, and you, you focus, and I think quite rightly, on tax neutrality markets. It is that neutrality element, and I, I find it difficult often to explain to people who have been uh, listening to, like Nicholas Shaxson and others, who sort of rail about tax in one sense. The truth is, IFCs make international business much easier uh, by simplifying and allowing bilateral arrangements. And, there are some timing differences in tax. I, I, I certainly see that, but by and large, they're not tax evasion elements. Uh, now, we also would see a, a situation developing where, take for example, digital taxation of the, you know, the, of the, the fangs and things like that. So we're seeing governments out doing this all over the place. We've also, of course, seen this enormous, effectively, taxation will uh, rise in almost every country around the world due to COVID, but it will also rise in the IFCs and. Uh, Bob is sort of curious here, you know, do you think the tax advantages of Crown dependencies in overseas territories are likely to come under pressure as they too have to uh, strive and revive post-COVID-19? So, you know, they've traditionally been pretty good about keeping local taxation and the international business separate. What do you think? Well, I mean, obviously, um, time will tell. I mean, clearly, um, the business models of uh, any of the IFCs goes back to your your point that I, I quoted from in my speech, Michael. On the one hand, they, they say, well, listen, we're nimble enough to be able to, to adapt very quickly. Um, uh, but equally, they would regard themselves as being bastions of some sort of certainty. Um, but I think Bob makes a good point, which, which is, and you know, we are in a, uh, uncertain uh, waters as to whether um, some of the um, tax, um, you know, whether it's zero ten, whether it's not having particular taxes, uh, will be sustainable given uh, the state of the balance sheets, even within um, many of uh, many of the uh, IFCs uh, that, that are there, and how that how that will play out uh, in um, in the post-pandemic world. But you know, yes, we are going to see um, clearly more of a, a tax burden. But I think this, the, the issue of tax neutrality is important, and as you rightly say, you know, the, having double tax um, agreements and being able to have those in a, in a very simplistic way um, assists um, uh, the flow of, of global trade and, and global finance. Now, uh, if 
one of the long-term impacts of uh, this pandemic is we get much more inward-looking. Um, I think that's a very undesirable state of affairs. You know, but I'm well aware, as is you are, Michael. You know, from the, the the history of the City of London, it, the city was the world um, global capital for finance up, up until the, the calamity of August 1914. We went into the First World War, um, and the irony really was it was actually withholding taxes from the Kennedy um, administration back in the 1960s that began the unraveling of that because because of that withholding tax you had a euro bond and euro dollar uh, markets uh, emerged and then of course Big Bang in, in 1986 and I I was at university in 86 I didn't didn't leave university till 87 so I've, all of my life and I'm 56 in a few weeks time all of my life I've known you know London as a big international financial center but in many ways um, Big Bang accelerated um, those threads that had emerged from the early 60s onwards. Um, but for 50 years, ultimately, the city was really in a, a, a UK financial centre. The, 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 the global um, importance that was attached to all those institutions had, uh, had uh, collapsed as a result of the, the First World War. And I, I hope that uh, historians will think very carefully about the implications, not just for the city, but actually for, for global trade, uh, if as a result of the pandemic, we decide to go down a much more, um, uh, you know, a, 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 or a much less international, but a, a much more parochial approach towards um, financing. And I, above all, you know, I think at a time and the very day, in fact, in which my old department, the Foreign Office, is merging with our development uh, d d department, you know, we rightly, look upon the importance of being able to provide a lot of opportunity for some of the poorest citizens across the globe. Um, and they will be the ones who will lose out most if uh, that sense of internationalization that we have perhaps taken for granted is undermined. Yes, it's, uh, it's, it's salutary to be reminded that London really was uh, quite moribund really up until about 1984. Uh, and what little there was was built on other people's mistakes the U.S. withholding. Uh, in, fact, yeah. in many ways, we, we're, we're built much more on other people's mistakes than we built on any uh, deliberate purpose. And in some ways, uh, IFCs too exist because of the confusion that uh, is uh, induced by short-term uh, thinking. Um, but we've got to, uh, we've got to a couple more comments out here. An interesting one. I have to take this one and bounce it to the top of the queue. It's from a dear friend. <laughs> Uh, Bevan Killick. And the reason I have to bounce it to the top of the queue is uh, Bevan's dialing in from New Zealand. And uh, I want to take his question before he goes to bed. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> and, and it's very much in line with your point here about internationalism. How do you rate the significance, Mark, of the CANS UK initiative bringing greater collaboration between the UK, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand? Well, obviously, I feel positive about it. I, I should say uh, to Bevan, I. I uh, I'd, I've, up until two years ago, I'd never been to New Zealand, and I had two visits there as a minister. Um, so I, I got out to the Northland up in uh, uh, Waukegan, um, and was, was, went down to South Island in Nelson. So it's it's a beautiful place, and uh, but uh, it is a lot of schlep to get to, as as you know, and uh, and uh, being either eleven or thirteen hours ahead of us makes it makes it difficult at the best of times. Um, I, I'm listen, of course, I feel positive about the the, the implications of working together. Um, you know, it, it goes back to this the initial question about uh, um, strengthening the relation with the Anglosphere. Um, I also think that you know clearly in 
insofar as we are moving into a world which, to be honest, I would slightly regret. I, I, I don't see China as being the, the big enemy. But if we are moving into a world which, which looks as though we increasingly are of a, of a, a, a trade war, but also a, a, a cold war on, uh, with China in place, it's, it's very clear that the relationship that we have um, with New Zealand, with, with Australia, you know, the Five Eyes relationship with, uh, that, that takes in the US and Canada, Canada will be important, um, not just in security terms, but increasingly in, in, in trading terms. Um, and I, you know, I was very aware from the conversations that I had with my counterparts uh, in both uh, Australia and in New Zealand, um, that obviously the, the strength of, um, of China increasingly economically, diplomatically, militarily, um, you know, particularly around the Pacific Islands, where huge amount of investment goes into place, uh, was one that uh, that we all needed to re recognise was uh, was something that we had to to work together on. And so the the Five Eyes relationship uh, is important. Obviously, as, as we leave the European Union, I, I think it's also right for us to, to recall, you know, just how calamitous that was that the captive markets that New Zealand had for their agriculture that put New Zealand into a, a recession for the best part of the, the second half of the 1970s. Um, and, and obviously, um, you know, things won't go back entirely to the way they were before, but I'm sure that uh, there will be important ways where uh, we can continue to cooperate. But it will be, I think, in in trading terms, but again, it goes back to this issue of values, the values that we have in common. And the one thing that one is very struck um, going to Australia and to New Zealand is uh, rightly, um, uh, many political leaders regard themselves as being within within Asia, um, and uh, therefore um, it is all the more important that the recognition that the, the values of a rule of law, of a free press, things that perhaps we take for granted, uh, are now things that are going to be increasingly under threat, but they are uh, the values that underpin the strength of the relationship uh, between uh, those countries of the Anglosphere. Well, I must say, Can Zooks uh, it sounds a bit to me like a 1950s cartoon swear word. <laughs> Can Zooks, uh, Batman. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think we're going to be working on a lot of these new relationships. Uh, uh, another acronym city along with BRICS and all those other things that have come up. Um, so speaking of funny words, uh, Tim Connell, Professor Connell, who's done uh, quite a bit of work with long finance on uh, corruption, uh, has a question here. Uh, how can IFCs protect themselves from the spin dryer technique of whizzing illegal funds around the world in, our, in order to hide their source? Well, with some difficulty, but in many ways, um, because the scrutiny is greater when it comes to money laundering, terrorism, finance, or, or, or generally sort of tax evasion matters, um, the IFCs uh, have to take a view. Either they're going to take a view that they, they will be open to all funds, or they're going to put um, the structures in place, um, structures that will be uh, independently assessed and monitored um, to ensure that is is not the case. And uh, going back again to what I was saying earlier on, one of the things I've been very struck by in a role now as a non-executive chairman uh, of a, a couple of companies is, is a realization of just how, uh, particularly where, where technology is an integral part of the, the business offering, just how robust those, um, those those protections are. But in many ways, as you say, um, you're as you're as strong as your weakest link, and therefore it is all the more important that uh, that the particular IFCs 
um, are able to provide um, that level of comfort. And, but that means sort of being very much ahead of the game um, in a way that I think a number of international financial centers have proven themselves to be in, in many of these areas. Hmm. It's always surprised me, Mark, that there hasn't been sort of a branding approach to this where, I don't know, a half a dozen, a dozen IFCs have pulled away from the pack very clearly. It's always been this sort of almost negative, you know, FATF said this or OECD said that. You, you had to dig into it uh, quite deeply and you've dealt a lot on just kind of general reputation. I guess I know where Jersey is. It seems okay. We've never really seen this hard crust of kind of good IFCs emerge. Do you think that might happen? post-COVID? Post um, I, I don't know. I think one of the reasons that hasn't happened is that there has been a sense that um, if, you, if you just try and un undermine your your neighbour to say that you, you know, you, your regulation is better than actually um, you're playing playing the hands of, uh, of, of critics who, who won't want to see any of the nuances but will actually just, just want to concentrate on, on some of the negativity that, that, that comes into place. Um, I, I think what may happen um, post-COVID is not, not so much um, having a branding or having a, a Premier League and a, a second and third third tier in the, quite that way, but I think that where there will be, there will be some strength of cooperation in particular sectors. So, for example, you know, whether it's the gaming sector, which again comes with a certain amount of controversy um, and is by no means exclusively um, at the... Uh, at the IFC level, but 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 obviously a number of IFCs have got some strength in in that area. May well be investment funds, uh, you know, the private equity funds, to to but to try and um, work closely together and to, to develop a brand according to products. And as I alluded to as well, I think the whole issue around sustainable finance, green finance, you know, clearly something that is going to be uh, regarded as um, uh, important, but politically. Um, uh, very salient in the years to come. That seems to be a, a, a good area where, there were, you know, particularly with the investment fund um, dominance, that there will be one or two of the IFCs who will be able to make a name for themselves in in that sort of sphere. Okay. Um, Mark, a couple of listeners are interested in your thoughts um, on data sharing. So, take for example, we seem to have different regimes around the world. So we've got GDPR uh, in Europe. Uh, China and India seem to think that data is the states. The Americans are a bit anarchic. This seems to me a, as a, a future battleground as well. Uh, where do you think IFCs should be standing on these issues? It, it is interesting. I, I'm not sure necessarily that there will be a, a particular role that IFCs will, will have on this, but uh, but it does seem to me at a fundamental level that, as you say, there is not going to be a global norm on data sharing that is going to emerge. Um, and um, it's also the case that, you know, we shouldn't necessarily assume that all the countries that we regularly have strong dealings with will necessarily be on our side of the of the divide on 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 this. And as you say, you touched on uh, two very large nations in China and India, but there are a number of other countries, I think, in Asia that will, will take a, a more or less liberal view towards data sharing than would be a regarded as a, as a Western norm. So I think probably from that perspective, the, the IFCs will be reluctant to um, uh, to be, be seen to side with one one or, or any other as far as data sharing is concerned. But it, it, the whole issue is around big data. I, I agree with you. I think it's one of the biggest issues uh, that, that we face, both for public confidence, um, uh, but, but 
but but also I think um, you know the, the risk is um, we put into place a set of norms uh, or we regard as norms um, and and also uh, the tax treatment of uh, of uh, uh, to technology companies um, which which could quite quickly unravel and and, and I think that the, the danger is again if we're standing up for a values based approach towards this sort of issue. We need to work together with those who who buy into our values, and the danger is there would be too much uh, of an opportunity for arbitrage. I think uh, if uh, we have particularly strict rules, you know, given the importance of technology and uh, the desire for many jurisdictions to have uh, large technology operators uh, working within them, and we're seeing this as played out in a small way. Obviously, so so far with Huawei, with the idea of TikTok uh, having their European base uh, here in in the UK, um, I understand many of the criticisms um, that are that are being put forward by elements within uh, uh, my, uh, my my party. Um, but but equally, uh, it is I think important that we, as far as possible, try to engage um, China in as many ways as, as as we can. And I think part of diplomacy is to find um, areas where there is at least common thinking or common understanding about some of the dangers, whether it's terrorism, financing, illegal wildlife trade, uh, climate change, and try and build up a body of trust uh, as opposed to just look upon this as being uh, a, a problem and uh, try and block off any sort of engagement. Um, Ranil Pereira points out that many financial firms locate in London because from London they're able to passport, i.e. offer financial services uh, throughout the EU out, without applying for authorization in those countries. EU financial centers, which have sought to wrest from London its position as the world's leading financial center, are likely to resist allowing passporting post-Brexit. What can be done to allow London to continue to be the world's leading financial center? Um, well, I th this, of course, is, is the, the nub of the problem, as you say, the, the lack of <clears throat> passporting for understandable reasons. And I guess one level, um, the, one of the interesting things that's happened in the last four years since the Brexit vote is that no single um, uh, mainland European jurisdiction has been able to um, move rapidly ahead, uh, be seen as the rival to London in, in many ways. The critical mass that London has uh, is something we, we shall, still shouldn't underestimate in a place in which people like, like, like to work. But equally, that, that lack of passporting will uh, become an issue, particularly if um, a lot of uh, professional services firms have become very cost conscious. I think many of the larger operations have just took the view as soon as it was evident that we were heading for a, a hardish Brexit. Um, the view was right. Okay, we know it's that's part of the cost of doing business in London. You know, we will have a London base. We will have uh, obviously some sort of uh, operation also um, within um, the EU 27 um, area. Um, that that may not be a luxury that London can can rely upon uh, going forward. So I think it, it is going to be um, fairly problematic. That said, again, um, you know we will um, inevitably um, want to work together to ensure that um, ongoing compliance and regulation in the broader financial and professional services sphere remains fairly well aligned. And you know my instinct has always been that. The reality of that situation, given the importance of London as a financial and a capital market centre for the rest of the EU, is that sort of de facto we will have a seat at the table, even if we're not not actually out in Brussels. But the, the work will be done at senior level to try and ensure that there is 
an ongoing level of equivalence. But again, you know, we run the risk of, uh, of the desire, particularly in new sectors that emerge, for arbitrage, which will make that much more difficult for London. Uh, Mark, you, you didn't say where you came down on where we should focus over the next five years, whether it was North America, China, Europe, the Anglosphere, or Africa and South America. I, well, I, I listen. I'll 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 check it out and say you know all, all, all the above. Um, listen, I, I was a minister for Asia, and I saw the opportunities uh, that that are there. Particularly, I mean, I, actually, Australia and New Zealand was also part of a broader Asia patch. But um, but also looking at um, you know countries such as Japan and South Korea feeling uh, threatened in the world that was going to emerge. And and you know within within ASEAN, I mean you know you look at the countries of ASEAN. Um, uh, Indonesia has over 250 million people. You're looking at the rapid advance in growth of Vietnam of a country of 95 million, you know Malaysia comes with with all sorts of political and, and, and other issues that are there. But even the Philippines, 105 million people, it's been growing at a fair old clip. And I, I know from many technology companies that uh, the Philippines is regarded as a fairly uh, good safe haven. To, to have back office staff working uh, there from. So, you know, I, I want us to have a, an eye on the world outside. You know, I always used to say as a minister, um, back from this wish, wishful thinking as well, um, that um, we needed to have, um, you know, if we, the, the trade agreement that we hopefully will do with um, the EU as we exit will be the single most important trade agreement that, that, that we do. So I, I understand why 32% of people at the outset looked upon Europe as being an important uh, sector to, to go forward. But I, I have a, a sense that in the broader sense, <clears throat> looking at the Anglosphere in Asia uh, is going to be the real focus, I think, and where the tremendous big opportunities will arise in the years to come. Well, I, I, I can't do anything other than agree with you wholeheartedly that it's about treating all comers fairly. We're, we're frequently asked, uh, given the global financial centers and other indices, what one thing and there is no one thing but if if there is it's it's that notion that all comers are treated fairly and this need to branch out internationally now mark i teased you and warned you that i might pull this up this was a, a concluding <laughs> slide uh from a, a seminar that uh, symposium that we held at gresham college uh back in uh, 2014 march 2014 and i think it's interesting because uh, maybe you might want to comment at the end but we agreed even then secrecy and tax evasion were certainly not, not, not on the cards. What we were really about was that simplicity of tax neutrality uh, and this idea of um, wealth protection. And we, we said then we thought that IFCs ought to be doing more to work together to sell things like the importance of tax competition. It's not a bad thing. It's how we yeah. keep governments out of control. You may not remember, but one of the musings of that, that particular uh, symposium was, was in the sense the UK uh, too large a country with 65 billion to hold an IFC uh, because the populism of politics tends to run over the long-term interests of the nation in, in having an important independent-ish uh, international sector where there is stability. Anyway, your closing thoughts, sir. Yeah, no, it's very, very kind. It's been lovely to, um, to, to be here with you and uh, I hope that uh, uh, it's been an interesting uh, webinar for, for those who have uh, link themselves in. One thing we've seen from the six and a half years ago when we uh, discussed this last um, is that uh, the, the debate continues there uh, and one has to be very alert to 
um, and going back to this idea of the being nimble to recognize uh, change that, that, that is in place. But I, 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 I'm, I'm a great believer that competition in the broader sense is a good thing for um, the global economy. It's good because it provides choice, something that, you know, again, many millions, many billions of people don't have in their their day to day life. Providing that choice and competition is important. The idea that uh, tax competition somehow is is wrong at the same time. If uh, if um, um, milk producers got together to uh, sort out the the, the 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 price of milk, there would be a um, uh, they'd have uh, the book thrown at them by competition authorities and uh, and uh, and cartels. But why we should have a, essentially a global cartel on on tax doesn't seem a sensible way forward. So I think there is a a strong uh, ethical case and a moral case um, that we will need to redouble our efforts to make uh, in the, the teeth of what I think will be some quite strong populist um, uh, opposition that will come sometimes, I'm afraid, from from uh, unexpected quarters, particularly government quarters. Um, and uh, uh, hopefully uh, we will be able to make uh, that case and that the IFCs will continue to thrive and uh, diverge and to uh, adapt um, in the years to come. Well, um, we've come to the end of time, which I always note when people start sending thank yous and compliments to you, uh, <laughs> which, I, which I shall forward. Um, I, I just have uh, three quick thanks to give, if I may. Uh, firstly, uh, again, to our sponsors. Uh, as you can see, a wide range of sponsors from around the world, including many financial centers. Uh, and it's uh, extremely kind of you to uh, allow us to uh, talk freely and openly on so many subjects. Uh, I'd like to thank as well the audience, as ever, uh, an engaged and interested audience, and thank you for coming. Uh, just a reminder that we've got a couple of things heading up, uh, not, not least tomorrow. We're going to be looking at equity used to replace a portion of an employee's salary. Next week, we'll be focusing on a financial center, uh, which is going to be uh, interesting. That's the Turk, Turks and Caicos. Um, so I would encourage you to come and hear it sort of from uh, the sales side of what it, what it's like, you know, what's going on. And quite intriguingly, the Turks and Caicos, for those of you who haven't kept uh, track of it, has rocketed uh, over the last five years as, a, as an IFC. Uh, so a lot, a lot coming ahead. And then we'll be looking uh, as well at the EU in general with David Doyle uh, on regulation and recovery and EU financial services. So a lot coming forward. But Mark, it remains for, really for me to thank you. Uh, I think it's always been impressive. I remember when uh, I, we met, um, in fact, I think it was closer to 20 years ago, 25 years ago, um, <laughs> but uh, let's not go there. But I do remember when you when you came out with your first book, I was like, oh gosh, another politician's book. And what you had genuinely done was to scrape up your speeches in the house and pump <laughs> them in, into a book. And it read not only extraordinarily well, but was enormously prescient. I mean, particularly, for example, about Brexit some 15 years ago. So I was uh, seriously impressed. And it's a delight to have a, a thinking uh, politician, uh, now businessman, uh, here today. And we hope to have you in the future. Uh, unfortunately, in these days of COVID, I am unable to open up for wide and uh, rapturous applause. But I do have my Korean karmic clapper here. And so on behalf <laughs> of the audience, I shall thank you. And uh, looking forward to perhaps having you again. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye.